Bible is filled with amazing stories, isn't it? Not all, all of them are easy to understand. In fact, some of them are just plain bizarre. But they intertwine to tell God's bigger story, the story of His Son Jesus, who came to redeem the people that God so dearly loves. All the stories of the Bible show forth His glory, reveal His character, and proclaim the truth that ultimately leads us to Him. Chara Donahue is a freelance writer who penned an article that caught my eye a while back. It's called Ten Unpreached Sermons. It spoke of ten stories in the Bible that are never preached on because they're too obscure, too random, or too strange. I read that article. I decided to pick up the gauntlet, to accept the challenge, and to begin a new series called Ten Unpreached Sermons. I'll use her topics, I'll use her titles, and I'll preach them in the order that she listed them. And indeed, they are bizarre in nature. In fact, I would ask if you would pray for me that I would be able to bring to light the truth that God intended for us from some pretty unusual stories and events found in the pages of Scripture. I believe that they're there for a reason. I believe that they're there for a reason. After all, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, that the man of God may be complete, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. If any of the ten topics could be considered fairly easy, it would be the first one. In fact, I've preached on this topic before, but here we go. Chara Donahue's title for the first of ten unpreached sermons is Korah's Failed Coup. We, we learned in our most recent series how Joseph brought his brothers to Egypt. Uh, the series was called uh, Bloom Where You're Planted. And he brought all of his brothers, remember, to Egypt. One of those brothers was named Levi. Levi had a son. His son's name was Kohath. Kohath had a son named Izhar. And Izhar had a son named Korah. Korah, the great-grandson of Levi, was part of the assemblage of Hebrew people wandering in the desert under the leadership of Moses following the exodus from Egypt 400 years after the time of Joseph. It was Moses who, who, if you remember from the Bible, he would hear from God and he would then impart the instruction to the multitude of which Korah was one. Make no mistake, the time in the wilderness had been difficult. The people suffered without many of the amenities and conveniences of, of what had been 
some sort of a normal life back in Egypt. The, the sacrifices were so great in the wilderness at times that the people longed to be back in Egypt, even under the exploitation of their cruel taskmasters. As leader, Moses had to make difficult decisions. As leader, Moses had to make difficult decisions that affected the people in seemingly adverse ways. Sometimes he was right. Sometimes he was wrong. But he always did his best to hear from God and move forward. But the people were ripe for rebellion. You see, there are two times that we're ripe for rebellion. One is when we're in adversity. The other is when we're in prosperity. One makes us disgruntled. The other makes us complacent. Korah, as we will see, is one of the most famous rebels in all of Scripture. He led an uprising against Moses and called into question the leadership of one of the Bible's great men, a true servant of God. It would be Korah's failed coup. The first of the ten unpreached sermons comes out of the book of Numbers, chapter 16. I don't know that we spend a lot of time in Numbers, in preaching. We're in Numbers today, Numbers 16. Korah's defiance of the leadership assigned to Moses can be for us a good lesson in trusting who God chooses to put into places and positions of authority. That's not always a lesson that we like to learn. Perhaps it isn't preached on. It's one of the ten unpreached sermons. Perhaps it isn't preached on because pastors are concerned it will be perceived as trying to manipulate or guilt the congregation into conformity. Verse 1 of chapter 16 of the book of Numbers. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and, and On, the son of Peleth, the son of Reuben, took men, and they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, hear this now, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and they said unto them, You take too much upon yourselves, seeing all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then do you lift yourselves up above the congregation of the Lord? Verse 4, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. Way down to verse 25. Moses rose up and went unto Dathan and Abiram. Those are, those are Korah's co-conspirators. And the elders of Israel followed him. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in their sins. Verse 28, Moses said, Hereby you shall know. 
Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own mind. If these men die the common death of all men, or if they be visited after the visitation of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord makes a new thing, and the earth opens up her mouth, and swallows them up, and all that appertains unto them, and they go down quick into the pit, then you shall know, then you shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, verse 31 says, as he made an end of speaking all these words, and that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up in their houses, and all the men that appertained unto Korah, and all their goods, they and all that appertained unto them, went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. And Moses looked out and said, Any questions? Who was this Korah? He was a man of stature. Again, verse 1 and 2 says, Now Korah and Dathan and Abiram, they took men, they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. These weren't fly-by-nighters. These were were long-time attenders. They weren't peripheral people. They were people involved in the ministry. And Korah was their leader. He was a man of influence. He He was respected. He was well thought of. He would be the guy who pulled all the disgruntled people together and provided for them a voice. Every uprising has a Korah. Every church split has a Korah. He was was a leader of the princes of Israel. He was a man of renown amongst men of renown. He was famous among the famous. Everyone knew Korah. He had influence. And and I I would rather have influence than power. Dathan and Abiram were his co conspirators. So Korah. Dathan, Abiram, these were were good men. How how wrong could these guys be? The answer, dead wrong. Korah was an important and influential figure during, during the time of the migration of the Jews out of Egypt and into the wilderness. He he's mentioned in Exodus chapter 6. Among the chief men of Israel, he was even appointed to service in the tabernacle. So Korah put together his dossier, assembled the troops, and stated his case against the leader of the Hebrews, a man that you and I know as Moses. Verse 3 says, They gathered themselves together against Moses. And against Aaron, and they said unto them, you, you take too much upon yourself, seeing you the, the whole congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you lift yourselves up above the congregation of the Lord? And again, verse 4, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. 
Korah was a man of stature. But he was still wrong. It was still wrong for him to try and usurp the man that God had placed in authority over him. But it wasn't just one or two others who who had issues with the leadership of Moses. It was 250 people. But it was still wrong for them to try and overthrow the God-ordained leadership. They weren't just anybody. These were dependable, entrenched, established people. Still wrong. These were leaders and former leaders. Some of them taught Sunday school or had served on the deacon board. Still wrong. Korah was a man of importance. He was a leader, a man of stature. The 250 with him were princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown, and they were all wrong. Korah and every single one of them. They were a people of folly. A leader, this is nothing new to you, a leader has to have thick skin. But that doesn't justify how some people treat their leaders. See the President of the United States, whether it's President Donald Trump or President Barack Obama. The leader gets it from all sides. It's the nature of the game. By assuming a position of leadership, you leave yourself open to criticism. And the reality is, sometimes you deserve it. It's impossible to please everybody. And the ones you don't please will usually let you know. It can can be like being an umpire. With every call you make, 50% of the people are mad at you. Leadership can be trying, and when the lynch mob is camped outside your office door, the stress can mount. Now, there are some perils that are simply inerrant in leadership. They're they're built into leadership. In other words, this is what you're signing up for. When you sign up for a position of leadership, whatever it is, this is what comes with it, okay? If you want to lead, just know this is what comes with it, okay? Number one, you will be hated. Some people will be passionately opposed to what you're trying to do. And some will take it very personally. And I don't say that flippantly. That's a reality. You will be hated. Number two, you will have to push past your fears. As a leader, you will have to push past your fears. Circumstances in leadership will push you to do more than you ever thought you could. Number three, you'll be misunderstood. You will be misunderstood no matter how many times you try to explain it. Some people will never get it. Number four, you'll have to be vulnerable. Sometimes you have to Bear the inner workings of your soul, and it won't always be well received. And number five, betrayals are inevitable. Even Jesus had his Judas. But if you've never been a leader, it's hard to imagine 
what it's like to, to invest blood, sweat, and tears into someone and then have them go a different direction. It's like a, it's like a punch in the gut. And I don't think you ever get used to that. It's not uncommon in churches for the negativity to, to gain momentum. It's like Korah and his cohorts. They start talking over coffee, and soon their families pick up the gauntlet. The, the conversation spreads to other families and into other groups, and soon there's, there's a groundswell of, of discontent. At the end of every staff meeting, at the end of every board meeting, my final question to the people at those meetings is, is there anything I need to know? Is there anything I need to know? Because often that groundswell is, is out there. And though it's not out there for everyone yet, and, and, and though on the surface everything may seem to be okay, this undercurrent begins to have a profound effect. Now because of the undercurrent, every mistake of leadership is magnified. Every word spoken is scrutinized and over-evaluated. Soon, others are brought into the ever-widening circle of dissatisfaction. It becomes a snowball that's rolling downhill and rapidly gaining momentum. Some of the complaints, I'm sure, are legitimate. You take too much upon yourself, Korah said. Well, remember... Remember the story of Moses and Jethro, where Jethro, his father-in-law, was telling Moses, you take too much upon yourself. I'm, I'm sure some of the complaints are, are legitimate. Hey, we hear from God too. Who do, you, who do you think you are? Maybe some of that's true. I'm sure in every church split and every uprising against a pastor, there are some parts that are totally legit. But there's also an underlying voice. There's an animator. Hear me, church. There's an animator who has a broader mission than the Korahs of the world. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Sometimes we have to recognize who the real enemy is. The world operates, you see, in the here and now. But the Christian deals in the here and not yet. We have one foot in this world and the other foot in the spiritual realm. And one of the ideas intrinsic to Christianity is the idea of spiritual warfare. In the Our Father, the famous prayer that Jesus prayed... He prayed, deliver us from evil. Well, many translate that as deliver us from the evil one. This establishes an enemy, Satan himself, the first Korah, the first rebel. It was Satan, then known as Lucifer, the first fallen angel, the first rebel, the one who instilled rebellion into our hearts and minds, of whom it is written in Isaiah 14, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, 
which did weaken the nations. For thou hast said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And tucked within that disturbing passage is a subtle expression lost in the drama of the moment which did weaken the nations. And indeed, the spirit of rebellion has weakened the nations. It has, it has eroded the underpinnings of society, chipped away at the family, and undermined the church. As the spirit of discontent grows, let's say in a local church, God is not pleased. Proverbs chapter 6 says that God hates it. When people sow discord. It's Satan in those moments who gains ground. And when people begin to leave the local church, the judgment of God from generations gone by falls on them. It goes all the way back to the rebellion at the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. And the people are scattered. And we live in the results every day here in 2018, whether we realize it or not. And God is not pleased. And the reason He's not pleased is because He's a God of order. Leadership is a God thing. Leadership, church, is a God thing. It's the Bible that teaches husbands, parents, bosses, uh, elected officials, and pastors should lead. Why, why would the Bible teach this? Because we serve a God of order. 1 Corinthians 14 says it well in verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And then it says this. As in all the churches of the saints. There's a reason pro football teams, baseball teams, basketball teams, they don't have co-coaches, or they don't just say to the players, hey, see what works out for you guys. They, they recognize there has to be a leader, a person to whom final responsibility falls. It's the only way it can be done without constant chaos. And so it is, and so it is in the institutions of society. Ephesians 5 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, as the husband is, and therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be subject to their husbands in everything. Ephesians 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? For this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long upon the earth. A husband is the God-ordained leader of a household. It absolutely does not mean that he's better, smarter, or more capable. It does mean that he's responsible for the health and well-being of his family. He's to love them, he's to cherish them, he's to nourish them, and he's to protect them. 
According to Scripture, employees have a responsibility to submit and to serve their bosses well. Servants, it says, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in singleness of heart as unto Christ. And employers or bosses have a responsibility to their employees. And you masters, do the same thing unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master is in heaven. A leader of a city or a nation has the same basic duty to his or her constituents. And citizens have a duty to submit to their local and national government, according to Romans 13. Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Korah didn't like the idea of submitting to authority. Maybe maybe he didn't like some of the decisions Moses made. Maybe he didn't like the direction they were traveling in the wilderness. Maybe he wanted to be the leader. And there are ways to orchestrate change in, in government, on the job, in the family, and in the church. But according to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, it must be done decently and in order. In order for things to be done decently and in order, there has to be a structure within the organization. We talk about that during membership meeting. It's one of, it sounds like it, like it wouldn't be that exciting. To me, it's really interesting. We have the, the flow chart of the church on there, how it works, the organization, where it all starts. And, and we have, there's provision within that to get rid of your pastor. But it has to be done decently and in order. There are ways to orchestrate change. In order for things to be done decently in order, there has to be a structure within the organization. There must be some sort of a chain of command, whether it's military, the church, corporations, government entities, or schools. There has to be an organizational structure. There was a time... When David clearly was chosen to be the next king of the Bible, or the next king of Israel, king of the Bible, yeah. He was chosen to be the next king of Israel. But Saul was still on the throne. Remember that? Saul had sinned. Saul had made grievous errors. But David would not assume the role of a rebel. David had the heart of God. And he would work within the system that God had in place. And in more than one situation, David had opportunity to overthrow King Saul. And his associates wanted him to. But David refused, choosing instead to wait on God. The Lord delivered thee into my hand, he said in 1 Samuel 15, 26. But I would not stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. I will not touch the Lord's anointed, David said. Korah should have taken the same approach. And Moses said unto Korah, Here I pray you, you sons of Levi, seemeth it but a small thing to you, hear this now, that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle. It's not a small thing, Korah. 
that you have a place of ministry in the tabernacle and to stand before the congregation to minister unto them. And he brought thee near to him and to all, and all the brethren of the sons of Levi with you. And Moses said to Korah, And now do you seek the priesthood also? David knew that God had anointed Saul king over Israel because David trusted God. He was determined to let God choose when Saul should no longer be king. This is where many times we miss it. We rush ahead of God and try to orchestrate change according to our own wisdom. But David's great faith in God compelled him to wait until God made him king. David was content to wait for God's timing instead of trying to force things. And when we cannot wait on God's timing, it's a form of rebellion. This is no small thing, rebellion. Rebellion is not a trivial sin. In fact, 1 Samuel 15.23, hear me church, it says rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you. Rebellion is serious business. It's equated with witchcraft. It's classic spiritual warfare. He's a God of order. And Korah and his cohorts were out of order. And for that, there would be a price to pay. Verse 32 of Numbers 16, And the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah and all their goods. The, result, the results of this period of rebellion were devastating. Much like they are in the local church. In this case, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, they all died. But that wasn't all. 250 of their followers, those taken, by, taken in by the persuasiveness and the appeal of the rebels, only to be caught up in the mob mentality, were swallowed up with them. I wish that was the end of the story. But there was more. If you scroll down to verse 49 of the same chapter, number 16, it says that 14,700 people died in the plague that followed as a result of the insurgents. The consequences of rebellion go far beyond the moment. Rebellion not only affects those within reach of the circumstances, but it seeps down into the mindset of the generations that follow. Now I know... In lieu of everything I've said, that statement doesn't sound like much. It's the big thing. The spirit of rebellion seeps down into the mindsets of the generations to follow. The anti-establishment voice of the 60s are the leaders of today who are trying to overthrow capitalism and promote religious pluralism. We don't, we don't always overtly connect all the dots, but this is where it has its roots. The spirit of rebellion lives on in the generations that follow.
As far as the church goes, I think in terms of lost potential. I think of all the times that people left a church because of the difference of opinion or a temporary difficulty, and as a result, families are divided, friends are separated, ministries are compromised, personalities like, like Cora rise up, and the church has to go into maintenance mode. The resources of the church are, are now used for putting out fires and just kind of working to keep the thing afloat. Finally, people leave and the local church has to rebuild. There's a scattering of the people. There's a dispersal of the resources. And perhaps, most tragically of all, seeds of rebellion are sown into the tender hearts and minds of our youth. It's a tremendous loss of potential, serious waste of precious time that could have been used for ministry, evangelism, who do you want to align yourself with, Korah or Moses? One is a rebel swallowed up by the earth after a failed coup. The other a servant of God. A man who trusted God, obeyed God, and got it done. Critics, critics aren't real hard to come by. Korahs are a dime a dozen. He's famous for one thing. The earth gobbled him up after he failed God so miserably. Moses, on the other hand, he's a true hero. He's a servant of God, a powerhouse for the kingdom. By the grace of God, he did the impossible. He was an instrument in the hand of the God of Israel. I want the rebellious spirit of Korah that resides in me to die. I want to submit to God's wisdom, to God's word, to God's will, and to God's way. I want to decrease, and I want Christ to increase. I want to be a servant of God like Moses. If I can somehow, some way, be an instrument in God's mighty hand, if I can somehow be a vessel used by Him to accomplish His purpose, then my life on earth will not be in vain. I don't want to focus on Korah this morning. I want to focus on Moses. As I bring this to a close, perhaps God has called you into leadership. Now I know this wasn't the perfect cell job. But it was, was, was a little glimpse of reality. The great privilege, the great honor, the great responsibility of leadership. Perhaps God has called you into leadership. There's a lot of leadership within the church, teacher, leaders of the youth group, the deacon board. Maybe God has called you into politics. There's other aspects of leadership outside of the church, politics. Maybe God's called you to politics. Maybe within your family. Men. Men. God has called you to leadership. Every one of us has been called to leadership of some sort. And maybe God's taking you to the next level. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for the folks that are here this morning. 
Lord, it's easy to think of this message and think all about Korah and everything that happened and the drama, the circumstances. Man, it's like a made-for-TV movie. But it's really all about Moses and everything that he did for God, how he walked in obedience, how he trusted you, how he was willing to stand for you and take the heat, how he did the impossible, not in his own strength, not in his own wisdom, is far beyond him, and he knew it. But he was a vessel in your hand. Moses, the servant of God. Lord, I pray for the one that's here today that's called into leadership. The one who hasn't yet responded. Maybe they're sensing the pull. They're called. It's time for more. I'm not going to just make it by. I'm going to step into my role of leadership. I think of all the members today, four new members. They put their name on the dotted line. They stood in front of the congregation. They raised their hand. They said, that's me. I'm a new member. And for others, it's a call to leadership. That's me. That's me. I'm the leader. I'm the spokesman. I'm the voice. I'm the face. It's not always an easy place to be. There's some things inerrant in it. And yet to walk in obedience, there's nothing like it. I pray, Lord, for those today that have yet to respond to the leadership call in their life. Lord, I pray that you would speak with clarity to them this morning, that they might hear, they might understand, and they might respond in the name of Jesus.